As the United States military prepares to pull out of Afghanistan after nearly 20 years, it leaves behind a country still plagued by war. The Taliban continues to take over parts of the country, frequently outgunning the government's official forces. There is one bright spot to the country's defense, the Afghan Air Force. It's a relatively small force, just 240 helicopters, fighter jets and transport planes and about 7,000 members. But it's crucial to fight off the country's enemies while also doing such mundane tasks as delivering food for troops. As the U.S. pulls out, the days of the Afghan Air Force now might be numbered. I'm Gustavo Arellano. You're listening to The Times, daily news from the LA Times. Today's June 30th, 2021. Civil war escalates in Ethiopia as rebels take control of the key city of Mikkel. LA County urges everyone to wear masks indoors as a Delta variant of coronavirus spreads. And Mexico decriminalizes marijuana. So when does Snoop Dogg do his first trap corrido? Today, we talk about the Afghan Air Force, its history, its success, its tenuous future. We talked to two of my LA Times colleagues who went on a helicopter ride-along that came under attack. Since 2010, the U.S. military and other allies have poured $8.5 billion to support the Afghan Air Force, which dates back to 1918. In a long war characterized by inefficiencies and failures, it has proven one of the few success stories. They recently allowed LA Times Middle East Bureau Chief Nabi Bulos and LA Times photographer Marcus Yam to embed on a mission. We're reaching out to Nabi from his apartment in Beirut, whereas you can tell in the background, it's a little bit loud out there. Well, actually, it's a bit loud because we have a bit of a gas crisis now. And in fact, uh, you know, there are protests uh, going on as we speak. So there's a bit of honking and shouting right now. Once Nabi finishes this, he'll probably go out and cover that protest. And Marcus is joining us from Jerusalem, right? Yes, I'm actually uh, joining you from inside a, a, an old church converted into a guest house. Nabi, I want to start with you. Last year, President Trump set May 1st, 2021 as the official date of withdrawal for U.S. troops in what has been called America's forever war in Afghanistan. Now President Biden has moved that date to September 11th. How's that going? Well, it's going quickly, simply put. I mean, the fact is this was supposed to end uh, by September 11th. But in reality, we're expecting it to be done actually as soon as July 4th. So that's quite soon. Um, you know, over the last few months, we've been hearing about sort of these massive deployments um, of troops to help what's known as a retrograde action. So just as you have, you know, these troops deploying to protect the retreating forces, you also have this massive movement of material out of the country with just massive loads of planes leaving Bagram Air Base, uh, you know, Kandahar Air Force Base, et cetera, et cetera. And it also includes U.S. allies like Germany and others who are also now pulling back. The American media has long focused on the failures of the U.S. to properly train Afghan troops. But in the case of the Afghan Air Force, as yours and Marcus's story pointed out, it seems like here's a winner. How did that come to be? Well, with a lot of training, a lot of money. I mean, the fact of the matter is it costs a lot to train these pilots. And you had some excellent people coming in to train them, like Jack McCain, who went in as part of the, I believe, what's called the Afghan Friends Program. Yeah, that's the son of the late Arizona Senator John McCain. Right. He actually had to learn Dari, you know, was stationed in the country to teach uh, various Afghan pilots. And they've managed to do, you know, quite a good job. 
With that being said, there has been some attrition as well. I mean, you know, initial attempts to have trading outside Afghanistan were actually quite problematic because you had a lot of, uh, you know, escapees. You would have pilots who would go there for the training ostensibly and then just basically run away because they finally had a chance to escape Afghanistan. So, you know, but otherwise, they've actually managed to get people who are quite intelligent, who are quite brave, of course, as you can imagine, and they've managed to put them in a plane, you know, nine months after training and running really difficult missions, day in, day out. So, Marcus, you and Nabi went on this ride-along with the Afghan Air Force. As a f- photographer there, paint us that proverbial picture of what you saw from the start. When we went on these missions, I mean, it's all very, I mean, it's a, it's a, it's a very, very interesting experience riding on helicopters, but to see many, many helicopters taking off at once, you know, coming and going, like it's, it's seeing a large machine at work, basically, a, a war machine almost, you know. And for a photographer, it's always an interesting sight to see, like things, you know, helicopters come and go. We're not talking about like one helicopter taking off at a time, you know. We're talking about multiple helicopters coming in and out on missions, you know. Well, and just to jump in from what Marcus is saying, you know, this was this was Kandahar Air Base, which, you know, is probably like one of the busiest air bases right now because there are all these Taliban offensives and the Air Force really has to jump in and protect troops and do resupplies, et cetera, et cetera. Oh, and of course, and medevacs and casavacs, et cetera, et cetera. So it's a lot of work for that airport. When we took off, it was more like midday, I would say, right, Nabi? Yeah, around 2 or 3 p.m. Actually. Yeah, I remember lamenting to you, like, the light is <laughs> <laughs> I mean, can we say that on the podcast? But in any case, uh, yeah, I mean, I mean, the light, I'm sure, wasn't tremendous. And, you know, I thought this was going to be a really, really boring mission because, I mean, we hop up, you know, and then maybe, you know, a minute later, we land again and they start loading some ammunition, some tomatoes, some onions, you know, a little bit of eggs. And then they bring in this sheep. And I just think in my head, my God, this is, you know, this can't be, I mean, I mean I'll have to work hard to make this journalistically interesting. We take off, we, we go... We pick up some soldiers along the way, actually, while on top of the ship, yeah. actually. Um, and, you know, these soldiers were, like, fresh, rested, ready to go to war. One of them even had, like, bullets slung in, a, like, a, a crisscross direction on his shoulders. It kind of makes me think of the movie Rambo. I mean, they all had this look in their eyes, like a certain sense of resignation that they were going to face a certain, like, uphill battle. Yeah, it, it was going to get crazy, even though you're, again, going on a sheep, literally on a sheep run. The helicopter would do this thing. I mean, I think Nabi would better describe this to you, but the helicopter would basically, like, come in at a very high speed, you know, and tilt forward and, like, dive right down. Just to, sort of like a way an actual hawk does, like a black hawk. And it swoops upwards, like, at the very last minute, just like a hawk, and then just lands, basically. Yeah, I mean, I mean, the thing is, you know, they have to do this because it's so dangerous, right? The idea is that because the Taliban are able now to advance really close to where these planes are landing, right? Uh, you know, that means that the pilots have to have to use different techniques and different tactics to avoid Taliban ground fire. So in this particular case, we actually were at around 10,000 feet up in the air. Now, of course, nothing's going to hit us there. But then suddenly we're sitting there up in the air at 10,000 feet. And I start to realize that, well, A, my ears are popping. And then, you know, that we're going down quite fast traveling at around, you know, 150 miles per hour, I believe. But as we are approaching, right, you can hear the gunners just starting to, you know, you know, like, like lead trip with the M240s. These are big, heavy machine guns, right? And as we, you know, you know, go down, you see them starting to just arc their guns and then they let out a salvo. And then when we land, we heard them do it again as we take, uh, you know, as we took off. 
I actually, you know, I actually didn't know that we had been shot at that point. We'll have more after this break. The moment we land, you have these soldiers come in and just frantically empty the plane of all supplies, right? I mean, the helicopter of all supplies, right? We quickly, you know, get people in there, shut the door, and the pilot just immediately moves, you know, and he just, you know, he just punches the throttle, the plane moves quickly, and then, you know, as we pick up speed, right, he jackknifes up into the air, and at the same time, you know, then you hear basically the M240s again letting rip. All in the meantime, the soldiers we picked up were like frantically like like losing their minds. I mean, they were like really they they were really afraid. Their 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 faces were agonized and full of fear. They were pointing towards a like you know a certain direction for the gunners to like shoot at, and like you know they were hurt, they were tired, and one of them was even like he looked clearly dehydrated and was asking for water, and you know there wasn't any water on board. Um, I remember, like, even during the landing, like, Nabi, I think you were sitting down, but I was, like, trying to stand up in the helicopter. Like, I was trying to stand on two feet. Mm -hmm. And at some point, I just fell on my knees because, like, it was just too much of an angle. And mind you, this is an everyday thing, right? This isn't just, a, you know, an exceptional situation, right? I mean, these pilots are running five missions a day. And at this point, most of them involve that kind of danger just because the Taliban has been so resurgent. Wow. The fact is, it sort of tells you how crazy this all is because you need to have a helicopter to take supplies. I mean, normally, you know, resupplying is done, you know, not so much by air, it's done, you know, by road, right? Of course, you know, by trucks, et cetera, because it's much cheaper. But because of the situation with the Taliban, because the Taliban have advanced, you know, through all these areas and really have seized control of most of the highways outside of major cities, that means that all that stuff has to happen, you know, by plane or by helicopter. Marcus, you took several pictures of Air Force members on that flight. There's one where a man is staring out of the window and just has this beleaguered, pensive look on his face. What do you remember about that moment? Actually, that photo was taken of a soldier going towards Shawalikot. So that was the, the, the soldier going in to war, basically. And, and I remember sitting in the front end of the helicopter and looking backwards at them. And I remember thinking to myself, like, well... He's got this certain look in his face. I don't think he, he thinks he's going to survive this. Wow. You know, and, and in the meantime, you can see the second helicopter flying in formation in the background outside the window. And I thought to myself, like, you know, I need to, like, make this picture because it's not a face of a soldier coming out of war. This is a face of a soldier going into war. Yeah, in some ways, that's an even more profound thing because the guy's looking right at mortality. You're getting out of a battle. It's like, okay, I survived this day. In this case, he's like, I don't know what's going to happen. I'm probably not going to make it. Yeah, I mean, he had an incredible, incredible, incredible look on his face. And I just remember being mesmerized by that. And I just stared at him and he didn't even know I was staring. He didn't even realize I was staring at him so hard. The, the attack that the two of you documented shows how resurgent the Taliban is right now. They've taken over 23 districts in Afghanistan. They're blocking roads and making it tenuous on the ground to even... Uh, travel around the country. So that's why the Afghan Air Force is so key right now, right, Nabi? I mean, even more districts have fallen at this point and it's intensifying. And yeah, I mean, of course, you know, what's happening now is that the Taliban essentially have, you know, the initiative, right? And they're able to, you know, storm all these bases and all these outposts, right? 
And basically the only real crucial edge that the Afghan security forces have at this point is the Air Force. It's been the main blocking uh, element, if you will, because they're able to obviously you know, go up and strike the Taliban before they attack, et cetera, et cetera, right? So it's a different situation. Now, the problem is, as you can imagine, is that the Afghan Air Force is hard to maintain and it's hard to, you know, keep up, uh, you know, like, I mean, I mean, just keep it running, right? And that's been the main issue now. And a lot of that maintenance, at least the supplies, comes through private contractors. That's how the United States set up the military involvement in Afghanistan. Once the U.S. pulls out, is there any American plan to support the Air Force? Well, I mean, that's kind of the issue, right? I mean, the fact of the matter is, and, and this is a phrase you'll often hear, but it doesn't make it less true. The U.S. built an Afghan army in its own image, which is to say that it you know, created an army that requires legions of contractors to keep it going. What this means, in effect, is that, you know, I mean, to buy anything as simple as a gallon of fuel, right, hell, even a bullet, right, requires a contractor at this point. I mean, I mean, just to sort of, you know, you know, underscore how bad this is, even the payroll system, which was supposed to have been done, you know, ages ago, you know, for all the Afghan security forces, that's still run by a contractor that's paid for by the U.S., right? So as the troops are set to go to zero, so are the contractors, right? And what this means is that you have roughly about 18,000 contractors helping all the Afghan security forces, and a lot of them are really only for the Air Force. And so the plan for after is, I have to say, still unclear. I mean, there has been talk about, you know, using Zoom uh, sessions like the one we're using right now to actually help Afghan maintainers, you know, learn the ropes. There's been other talk about trying to base contractors in a country near Afghanistan. So, you know, Uzbekistan, Tajikistan, Pakistan, etc. Those countries aren't really willing to have U.S. forces because they're worried, you know, of attacks by the Taliban on their own soil. So it's really been hard going and nothing is clear at this point. Yeah, let's do YouTube tutorials to keep up the Afghan Air Force, uh, film them from the Pentagon. Well, I mean, you have to consider the fact that it takes an Afghan maintainer. Hell, you know, any maintainer requires about 18 months of, of training just to become I mean, just become ready for routine sort of upkeep, right? I mean, for the ones who can do, you know, deeper repairs, that takes years. So they have to do it in two months. It's just not possible. I mean, all aircraft are complicated machines to fly and, and, and takes, you know, a lot of maintenance and, and, and skill to repair them and to upkeep them. But helicopters in particular are one of the most complicated and most sophisticated machines that, you know, our uh, uh, technology's ever built. I mean, it's just it's a lot of moving parts. I mean, I say this because I have a background in, in, in engineering and all that stuff, and I, I studied aircrafts in school. And it almost seems like, you know, to, to, to circle back to what Nabi said, it almost seems like, not to oversimplify things, is like our greatest export, you know, to, to Afghanistan is not democracy, but is, is American military bureaucracy. Now, that's a great point. And it's, it's even sort of highlighted even more by the fact that we sent them, you know, these American planes, right, these Blackhawks, right? And, I mean, this is not to sort of, you know, belittle the, the importance of the Black Hawk. It's, of course, a great helicopter, and the crews love it. But the fact is that the Afghan Air Force was reliant for the longest time on Soviet military hardware, right? Like the MI-17 helicopters and the MI-35 Hind, which you see in Rambo. You know, just circle back you know, to Rambo again. <laughs> and the fact is, you know, they were, I mean, they knew how to maintain them, but because the U.S. had sanctions on Russia, right, and wasn't able to buy spare parts from Russian companies, they decided to go for the Black Hawk. Thus, in a sense, I have to say, you know, putting the Afghans in a bit of a tight situation. You mentioned earlier, Nabi, that it's not just the Americans that are leaving, so are, you know, other allies, or NATO troops, military hardware. Uh, how are Afghan civilians taking the withdrawal? So I've heard this from a few people, and I have to say it's a phrase that I like. Uh, people say in Afghanistan that the U.S. came uninvited 
and it leaves uninvited. You know, I think few Afghans believe that the U.S. was going to stay forever. I mean, no one really believed that. But I do think a lot of people now believe that it should have remained at least until it could have ended things on a better note. Which isn't to say, you know, anything about perhaps military victories, because I'm not sure the war was winnable, as President Biden has said. But just in terms of leaving Afghan forces perhaps in a more independent situation, right, making them not so reliant on contractors. I mean, just to circle back to the situation with the Air Force, you know, at least waiting until there are, you know, Afghan maintainers who are trained enough to maintain these aircraft independent of contractors, right, these things. But certainly there is anger. Intelligent reports suggest Afghanistan could fall to the Taliban within half a year, six months. Based on what you're seeing in the country recently, do you think that's going to happen? I mean, you know, again, if you had asked me the question a month ago, I would have probably said no. But but we're seeing this accelerating tempo of districts falling and, uh, you know, and all these troops surrendering to the Taliban just because the Taliban are so much more powerful and so much better supplied. And the fact of the matter is that, you know, it's unclear how long Afghan forces can last. And with all that being said, is it going to be a cakewalk? No, right? You know, like, will the Taliban march that easily into places and take full control No, because there will be an insurgency against them of some sort, right? Whether it's from these sort of government-mandated militias, you know, or just normal people who are not used to or, or, you know, or wouldn't accept Taliban rule. And it's really hard to take over major capitals. Like, it's easy to take, I mean, the outskirts of these capitals, like the districts and all that are are less defensible. You know, like cities like Kabul are are hard to penetrate, basically, just because of its defenses and like the way it's set up. Yeah, but I mean, is it possible? Sure. I mean, I mean, I mean, is the end of the Afghan state as the U.S. has built it over the last 20 years possible in the next six months? If you tell me that, I would say yes, it is possible. Does that mean a full takeover by the Taliban? Not necessarily. No. Nabi, Marcus, thank you both for joining The Times. Thank you for having us. Thank you for having us. And that's it for this episode of The Times, daily news from the LA Times. Tomorrow, the first of a two-part series about the 100-year anniversary of the Communist Party in China and how this has affected generations of people in places like Taiwan and Hong Kong. Our show is produced by Shannon Lin, Stephen A. Cuevas, and Denise Guerra. Our executive producer is Abby Fentress-Swanson. Our engineer is Mario Diaz. Our editor is Shawnee Hilton. Our intern is Ashley Brown. And our theme music is by Andrew Eben. I'm Gustavo Ariano. We'll be back tomorrow with all the news and desmadre. Gracias. <laughs>